Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and feeling a little under the weather, actually. Uh, I think my little guy gave me a bug that I'm just kicking, but uh, enough about me and my sickness. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Tim Sarantonio from Neon CRM. Uh, he's got 10 plus years of experience working in and around nonprofits. He's raised over $3 million for different causes. Uh, he's a TEDx speaker multiple times, and this intersection of kind of data, software, technology, and philanthropy is a passion of his. It's a passion of mine, and that's what we talk about today. Uh, we get to talk about cool things like data hygiene, data integrity, uh, open APIs, things like that, but really it's a conversation about how technology can help and enhance the fundraising and giving experience, and how can it be used to grow giving. So that's what we're talking about today. I hope you enjoy the conversation and thank you as always for listening. Welcome to the freak show. Here we go. It's just another freak show. Here we go. I said, Welcome to the freak show. Here we go. It's just another freak show. Here we go. Oh, welcome to the freak show. Here we go. It's just another freak show. Here we go. Welcome to the freak show. Here we go. It's just another freak show. Here we go. Hey Tim, thanks for coming on the pod. Hey, thanks Brady for uh, for having me on. I'm you excited. bet. You bet. So we're going to dive into kind of software integrations and how those two areas kind of apply to philanthropy. But I want to hear just a little bit more about you and like how did you end up in this generosity space? Hmm. I mean, it, 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 as a typical graduate of a liberal arts education, and of course it's going to be a convoluted answer, but um, <laughs> the long and short is that I uh, got rejected for PhD programs twice. Huh. I was actually on track to be a labor historian. I went okay. to school for labor history. I like was obsessed with like you know, grassroots organizing wildcat strikes. I did a paper on, um, you know, a dairy farmers union strike where they were shooting at people from the mountains, <laughs> you know, while they were driving up in the 1930s Adirondacks, like just wild, wild stuff. And, uh, and I went to school for that. And, and basically what happened is that I got uh, a, a bachelor's degree in history I flew over to Ireland, got a master's degree there, uh, then went back and went to school and got a master's degree at Columbia University, all because it was like, I got to get my my resume ready to apply to all these schools. So I'm Hmm. just going to pack it with all this stuff. And uh, basically what happened is that I packed my debt uh, to the ceiling and then got rejected because, and then after that, it was like, I get to work at a coffee shop because I have a degree in culture and colonialism. (laughs) And so I stumbled into my first nonprofit job. I'd always, I'd always been fascinated about networks. I'd always been fascinated about kind of spaces of, of, you know, intersection, right? Like that, that was my background in, in history and, and kind of what I would study and, and always interested in social justice movements. So naturally that led me into the, the generosity sphere. And I just happened to get a job as a grant writer for a day labor organizing center in Chicago. And the way that I approached that is I wanted to, to, to embrace it fully, right? I, I've always been, kind of one that when I was looking at things, when I was analyzing things, I'd always get upset when people would just get too focused too much on theory 
mm. and not on practice. So even when I got the grant writing job, I went out and tried to get temporary labor jobs in the south side of Chicago. Hmm. And like would be up at four in the morning and there's these massive just buildings where people are just sitting waiting for work. Hmm. Right. Like it's the hidden the hidden layer of of how our economy operates. Right. And this is international. Right. You know, this is this was in Chicago. People would be blown away to know that that like what people struggle with, right? Mm-hmm. But that's a level of privilege that we try to hide because literally we would hide it with double-sided mirrors. That's right. that's what that would happen. So that that kind of storytelling was important to try to get the grants. And then from there, I just kind of fell in love with fundraising hmm. and fell in love with, with even data systems because it was just kind of like a means to an end at that point. Right. You know, ultimately, and and even where we get when we start getting into the topic at hand, everything's a tool. You know, software is a tool. If you think it's an end end to itself, you're missing the point. Right, right. Um, It it needs to always come back to that story and that relationship. Yeah. And and so that's uh, that's at least from my personal experience. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where I am, how I got here. Now, <laughs> getting to Neon was like, Neon's a for-profit company, so the, but at least, Neon One at least helps nonprofits. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so I've really only worked for, and in the nonprofit space for, gosh, probably, at, well, you know, most of my adult life at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, one of the great things about having this podcast and chatting with people like you and asking that question of kind of yeah. like, <clears throat> how'd you get in this space? Uh, there's no one answer, right? Everyone has these different entry points, but more often than not, <clears throat> I, I think people kind of find their way into it as opposed to kind of very intentionally go into it. It happens a lot. And I think that has implications yeah. for what we're talking about in terms of software tools, integrations. I don't, I don't think, I think in our space, it's a little unique and I never, I don't like referring to nonprofits as businesses, right? Like, because there's this added cultural element that I don't think necessarily exists unless it's like a dedicated social enterprise, right? And so what I think hurt, I don't think anybody wakes up and says, boy, I can't wait to ask rich people for money, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I don't think that's that's like anybody's dedicated job. You know, for me, I wanted to be a lawyer when I was growing up. I was a weird kid. I was a weird kid. I wanted to be a trust and estates lawyer. You know, my mom was in uh, paralegal for a trust and estates law firm, and that's the thing I latched onto. <laughs> and then I got to college. I'm like, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to shift over to labor history, right? So, because <laughs> that's the natural shift. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> utterly the natural shift. And so, I think a lot of people do kind of fall into it, other than the fact that they want to help. Yeah, I think that we we are hardwired to help people. Well, and I think uh, that's why people find their way into the space, right? It's yeah. not like people accidentally end up in like chemical plants or something, you know, like you got to be intentional about that and it's not yeah. a root issue. Whereas everyone fundamentally I think does want to help, want to give back and how that comes out is very, very different. So yeah. when people go through career changes or they're looking at something like uh, the nonprofit space, the generosity space is really appealing because it appeals to everyone at some level. I'm obsessed with the show The Profit on on CNBC. Have you hmm. seen that? No, I haven't. I think you dig it. So it's Marcus Simonis. Uh, he's he's kind of he owns like Camping World and and things like that. Uh, boy, he would be really cool for this podcast actually because he 
he does a lot of things when it comes to like investing in small businesses, but he always talks about, I invest in people. Yeah. Right. I invest in people. And last night's episode that we watched, my wife and I, um, cause she's an engineer. So she has a very different way of thinking about the world, but we mm-hmm. come together on this show because I think that there's a lot of process things that appeal specifically to her. Like they were doing like, structural engineering on the building and the efficiencies on that. Right. And she like got, gets really excited, like looking at the fire protection systems and I'm sitting there going like, what's their point of sale system? Like, how does that, how does that like bleed into the, the videos that they're using to like promote their products? And so this woman had started a business in new Orleans that focuses on cork products, Hmm. like cork from the trees. And, but she uses a nonprofit to like, she paired with a nonprofit to like funnel the labor. And her story was that she was in real estate and things like crashed, but kind of that element of the story about partnering with the, the, the organization that helps the kids, like that's what Marcus invested in. And so I think that's kind of like a pop culture example of what we're talking about too. So, because people just, you never know, yeah. you never know where you're going to fall. Well, and I think that's why we've seen the rise of things like B Corps and Triple yeah. Cs and things like this because you've got – This is water these... by the way. This is yeah, not right. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, right. No, my, my CEO might listen. No, it's, it's, uh, it's how I make sure I get 132 fluid ounces of water every day because this measures 64 ounces. So You know, talking about the, the liquid uh, beverage container is great for podcasts. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, that's, that's Let's a, just describe the thing that you're drinking out of for the next 20 minutes. This will be great. It, it, it's a growler for those who are interested. <laughs> um, why use, I, Brady, I don't know if we've had a, a, a video call for a while, but I've actually lost 50 pounds since June. I remember you said that in an email uh, yeah. about Stronger You someone that we had on the podcast because of your connection and that's yeah. great and drinking yeah. water is a big part of that eh? big big part of it big part of it but not anything that's probably interesting to people who are <laughs> listening right now so so we'll have Moving two on. separate podcasts one will be uh beverages Absolutely. and then the other one will be like colonial labor uh those will be two other podcasts so i think that's a good one how yeah. about them apples how about so. them apples well let's let's get back to the topic at hand which is really yeah. generosity and what i want to focus on more is kind of software and integrations and you know we've got two non-development uh, non-developer people here talking about software and integrations which hopefully Correct. makes it accessible <laughs> yeah. as opposed to kind of two in the weeds but Maybe start with this standpoint of just – you talked about already like software is a tool. But uh, why do you think software is so important to nonprofits and social impact organizations in the first place? So if we go back to, to kind of what you were talking with Gail Perry about in terms of being able to focus on major donors and relationships and things like that, there is only so many hours in the day and we're going to spend some of that sleeping and some of that uh, hopefully with our families and developing things outside of, of the work time, right? So within the work day, we need to be as efficient with our, our time, our talent, and our treasure as possible. And software can greatly assist with that, especially if it's software designed around that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that, especially when we get into integrations and things of that nature, is that Everybody thinks that they have this unique solution and then they recreate the wheel and it's like, well, now I have 70 different options on how to take a donation online. Yeah. And and they all are going to say like Brady Josephson, Tim Sarantonio, first name, last name, then what? 
right? Yeah. Some systems would look at that and go, they're two people. And then another donation, a recurring donation, because they've really optimized things using Next After's tool, uh, tools and suggestions, right? And, they, and they, they bring in that recurring donation because also a recurring donation is what, 5.1 times more impactful with your Five. Salesforce study? 5.4. 5.4. I'm sorry. I'm hey, that's sorry. pretty good. That's pretty good. So, uh, so going to go to recurringgiving.com, folks, <laughs> um, and uh, and so, but that type of thing. I mean, a recurring gift, if it comes in, like you look at some systems, and they're just going to make another record, right? It's going to mm. be a duplicate. It's going to be like something you can't report on. And so, when we don't think out systems. And this even applies to like old school work. Uh, Pamela Grow, uh, one of the consultants that we work with, uh, who's pretty pretty awesome, um, and is friends with with uh, Gail as well. She she talks about fundraising systems, but with her, she's talking like old school structure, like mm-hmm. process systems. And I think that a lot of times we don't design our software systems to align with our processes, right. and that's where breaks occur. Yeah. And and I think that's the biggest struggle is that, you, you, you know, you're never going to have a killer app that does everything. I, I think that there's some systems out there, some companies out there that we don't need to talk about that try to, like, do everything with one thing or, mm-hmm. or, or they say they have everything, but nothing talks to each other. Yeah. And and that's just not the way to go. That's not what's going to be, be, you know, the future. Yeah. Well, and I think that that approach, um, I mean, there's a few things in there, but that kind of one thing – doesn't do everything uh, is one of the things that I know we've connected early on and one of the things that you know yeah. I've appreciated about Neon is the commitment to things like integration. So let's let's jump into more of the integration side of things. Sure, so sure. you know software is a tool. It should be built around the kind of processes or systems that people actually use. Yeah. But you know I work for a software company. You work for a software company. Creating a piece of software that meets all the needs of all the users in all their kind of edge cases is impossible. So you have to do some compromising it somewhere. And to me, this is at least where integrations come in. You say, we're going to do this really, 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 really well. And we can customize this to meet the needs of the majority of people that use this. And in these other areas, we're going to find another tool, a hack, an integration, something to solve that problem so that we don't have to solve that problem in a crappy way. Is that basically the value of integrations or, or can you expand on that a bit? I think that's that's a good entry level for it, right? I think that that the ultimately at the end of the day, an integration also is a means to an end, mm. and and the biggest most important thing is data integrity. Mm. I don't think that we focus on data integrity and data impact enough. You folks do. Uh, that's why I love talking about your content. But I think as an industry, we focus too much on things like vanity metrics, right? Like how mm-hmm. many open rates do I actually have mm-hmm. versus, yeah, who gives a, a crap, right? I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, but yeah, you um, can. That's fine. who gives a shit <laughs> about like open rates? Because if an open rate doesn't lead to a donation, uh, so like how many Facebook likes that you have, how many times, uh, you tweeted at a Senator, you know, <laughs> or, or, uh, a council person or something like that. Like, it doesn't matter if you don't get the intended result or at least something that shows you the path to ultimately your te- intended result. And so in- integrations help because when you find best of breed items that work well together, when they support each other, when the data actually makes sense alongside each other, um, that means you get a more full picture of someone. 
I mean, that's that's what I think has been the problem. And this is as close to a pitch as I'm going to get, Brady, <laughs> is that what I've seen in the industry, what I've experienced in the industry is that you have kind of two primary primary approaches, which is very open ecosystem for something like Salesforce, which is very, very great as a tool. And we do, and we work with Salesforce through our, our peer-to-peer product rally bound. Um, but if somebody doesn't establish those processes, things can get kind of off the rails very quickly there. And then there's the Blackboard side, which is like, if we don't own it, we don't care about it. Hmm. And the other piece is that they haven't I haven't seen a dedicated embrace of an open standard when it comes to actual software implementation, right? Like I just saw the announcement about the social good thing with Microsoft and all that, and and that's all well and good. But how does that actually apply to when we're looking at something like campaign impact? Mm -hmm. You know, how does that actually work across all different platforms? And with Neon, we actually established a certification process that analyzes not just does it do the thing right like that's where the the i've actually had talks with developers where they're like well why do we have to write documentation for how people use the integration but can't we just like tell them to turn it on and it's like no we need to tell them what it's going to do and so that's why we call it a customer experience testing as opposed to a quality assurance testing because it needs to address the point of view of the actual nonprofit, not did a developer do a thing right. Because if we design things from a developer standpoint only, it misses the story, it misses the, the, the point of the people like you and me and, and even beyond that, the nonprofit professionals using it who are sitting there going like, yeah, but I'm trying to run a report like on this campaign and it's getting things pulled in from this other system. And it like, none of this makes any sense. So we look at it from end to end, even like how does this uh, impact operational back end as well? Like QuickBooks accounting and reconciliation. That's what we try to look at for the whole picture. When we talk, when we think about integrations for our ecosystem. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get um, maybe, hung up on um, some of the things that tools and integrations <clears throat> can't do. Yeah. And I, I know that that's one of the things that I say all the time. I, I mean, I say every tool sucks. <laughs> and, and, and that's not to say, you know, I mean, there's an element of truth in that. It's in that every tool will not be able to do everything that you want it to do and how you want it to do it. That's just a fact of life. Yeah. And I think there's an expectation process or part of this as well, where people are expecting a tool or a software or an integration to solve too many problems. And the sooner that people go, here's how I can solve my problem, here's where I can't and I need to find my own solution, the better. Hey everybody, Brady here. Back to the interview in a second, but a quick question for you. What are you doing September 24th and 25th of 2019? If the answer isn't joining us at the Nonprofit Innovation and Optimization Summit in Denver, Colorado, then you failed the quiz because you should be there. It's a great time with great people. We bring in speakers from all around the world, for-profit, non-profit, to try to provide the best possible experience for you to inspire, to educate, to train, and grow generosity through this event. If you want to learn more about this conference, you can go to neosummit.com. That is N-I-O summit.com. And if you like what you see and you want to buy your ticket, which we hope you do, you can use promo code podcast to save 30%. So that is neosummit.com and use promo code podcast to save 30%. Hope to see you in Denver. 
And I think this is also the other issue, though, on that side is that we also have to because we have only so much time in the day, we also have so much capacity in our budgets. Right. So we have to be efficient with the tools that we end up prioritizing. So if you want to spend and blow all your money on something that does like one little thing super really well, you got to make sure that it's also driving the results and the revenue to justify keeping that thing, to yeah. having that thing, right? So because if, you can also go too far and say, well, let's just integrate everything and, and have you know certain pieces around this, that, and the other thing. And then that just drives up cost. It doesn't actually save you pure, pure money because even though you save the time – you're paying for a lot of extra third-party stuff too. So that's a yeah. concern. Yeah, well, and m- maybe uh, an example of, of this kind of uh, Catch-22 or kind of irony that I see all the time is often people spend a lot of money on a database or CRM because yeah. it's valuable. Data is yeah. valuable, right? It's hugely yeah. important. And then they they don't give a crap really about the front-end donation page, right? Yeah. I mean I, I went through in Canada and made 152 donations and in the U.S. I love study, that report by the way. Know, thank you. Yeah. I mean we make a lot of these donations. Part of it is we want to experience what the donors experience and I can tell you it's not a great experience. And yep. so when you go back to it, you go, oh, well, you know, these – to make these changes, we don't have developer or then you know, to use this tool, it doesn't seamlessly integrate with our CRM. And the thing is yeah. you're paying all this money to keep data, yet you are killing yourself from acquiring data for the need to get consistent data. Do you know what I mean? Like it's this thing that happens all the time and that's where this approach of saying let data be data and have ways to use awesome donation tools or whatever and integrate or feed or API. Like that's not that hard for a lot of products now where you can actually do that. You shouldn't have to compromise. Well, we want data integrity so we got to have a crappy front-end experience. I I will say I actually – I see that – I also experienced the flip side where people dump all this money into their front end in terms of a beautiful website experience and then they forget or the developer does something on their own in terms of a website, creates a form that's like, well, WordPress has like, you know, the 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 giving thing in that. So we'll just do that or or I'll build a custom Drupal thing. And and then they don't connect it to the CRM properly to get it into their their Salesforce or their donor perfect or their their you know neon or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and so again we have to think about holistic process. I Correct. think that's yeah. the disconnect is that everybody has their kingdom and they don't want to play well with other other things because they think it's going to encroach on their their power. Right. Yeah. And and I'm sitting here saying and obsessive about saying, like, no, we are much more powerful when we have an open approach, when we have a standardized approach that is end to end. I I'm slightly in the minority, unfortunately, in terms of practice. I think a lot of people like talk about it. Yeah. But I think that the business practice and implementation, people still go back to their kingdoms because we have to pay our bills and we get scared that people are going to steal leads from us or donors from us or stuff like that. You see that on, on, on with nonprofits trying to do like collaboration projects too, right? They think that they're going to dip into the same donor pool. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when foundations are saying, why don't you just work together on, on this? And they think, well, they're, but they're going to take our services and our homeless, you know, our homeless folks are going to go to their services instead of ours. And then we're going to lose that state money. Like there's obvious real economic concerns about that. But if we if we approach things from more of a collective impact model, 
um, which is which is just kind of that general idea of we are more powerful working together when it comes to our institutions and then zeroing in on our strengths as opposed to trying to replicate things poorly because we're trying to do everything. I think that gets into the heart of what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, the irony in that situation is they're already sharing donors, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a weird thing when you work for a nonprofit, like as I did, like, you know, rationally that they're out there giving to other organizations, but for some reason you feel like it's my donor, you know, and, and you're, it's very, very harmful yeah. and it's just not true. <laughs> the, the, we all know the mantra, your donors are not your donors. Yeah. You don't own them. They can leave you at any point. I got a bunch of stuff in the mail today where I'm like, oh, you oh, you must have just did an NCOA update on me, but you haven't communicated with me in an impactful way, like right in the garbage. You know, it's like I've donated to you before. It doesn't mean I'm going to come back. And that's yeah. why retention rates are awful in the industry. I mean, the fundraising effectiveness project, which analyzes donor uh, data from a bunch of different softwares, they, uh, I mean, it's like 46% this year, you know, uh, and, and it only ticked up a little bit in revenue and we're seeing maybe some better retention rates on major donors, you know, $1,000 and above. But overall, I mean, especially if you're an organization with $500,000 and less in revenue, your retention's like bad. And that's, I think, because people are just not prioritizing donor stewardship. Yeah. And uh, so two things there. I mean, one, if you dig into those numbers, the first time donor retention rates even lower, it's like 22 percent. Right. Yeah, so so that that low number that we always cite is is actually <laughs> bolstered. Yeah, it's actually bolstered by these repeat loyal donors. And when you take them out of the mix, when you go at like new customer acquisition, how terrible we are. And part of that is communications. Yeah. So I, I think sometimes we think too much about stewardship plans and letters in 48 hours and calls. Like that's great. That's absolutely valid. But we experienced that in our study with Salesforce and the one-time gift and recurring gifts is yeah. basically that there seemed to be maybe a quick bump like in the first month. Here's how we'll treat this donor kind of uniquely based on the giving type. Yeah. And then you kind of go back into this mainstream where you get some communication or don't. And so these these kind of stewardship plans seem to either be short-sighted or non-comprehensive. Yeah. And really it's the, the ongoing communications that does the most to retain um, donors. And it's got to be omni-channel too. I mean I always cite, I always cite that, that postcard uh, item in talks that you folks did in terms of yeah. the mailing, the Thanksgiving mailing. And, and I love that one because – it, it, that one in particular, it's like we're going to send an email. We're going to drive people with a postcard also, and then it's going to drive them to a video, right? Like you, you hit so many different things there, and it's so obvious why the numbers went up. Yeah, and, and I think that that when I've done studies on generational giving, for instance, people people get into this headspace that like emails the only way that you're going to reach people and it's mm -hmm. like actually it's not generationally even the dreaded millennials and things like that we still like getting stuff in the mail yeah <laughs> where we're, there's a lot of times that major donors are still going to give through check even if they received an email i mean there's 
it's all over the place. Yeah, one of the biggest uh, issues, and this ties back to data, but um, you know, where people interact isn't always where they transact, and and that's one of the downsides, I think, of the data systems that we've created. Is we track, did they give online or offline? Uh, which is useful to track, but then we we basically, oh, they gave online, let's not send them mail, or they gave you a check, you know, let's only send them mail or let's find some way to convert them into an online donor instead of being like, what's the best way to communicate with these people? And how about we let them choose to donate in the way that they think is best? I think this is where we as an industry can can learn a lot from the for-profit side in terms of like source and, and source tracking. Hmm. I think that, that, that especially when you look at like retail – there's there's a lot of those those e-commerce platforms and in-person platforms, you know, things like Shopify that have done a pretty darn good job at like tagging who somebody is and understanding their buying behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that if we we apply, that's why I think where if we're going to see anything when it comes to, you know, one, I, I hope that we see larger aggregates of of data that are privately and securely held, but then having better artificial intelligence and machine learning applied against that to understand donor behavior better. It's kind of like what exact ask does, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that kind of cool little, little, uh, company that's going to help zero in and say, okay, this is exactly why somebody's going to give and what they're going to give. And that's kind of their approach. They're aggregating all these larger data systems, but you need to, you need to know who somebody is in order to actually really do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <the> problem. <laughs> you know, one of the neatest integrations or possible integrations I think is between websites and CRMs. Yes. Right? So who someone is, what did they visit, how long did they visit, what things do they like? Um, that to me is unbelievably interesting information, which for the yeah. most part is still outside of, of a CRM. Right? Yeah. So I maybe know your last gift and the RFM model, which is somewhat useful, but it's basically all that we have. Whereas like if I know you're reading a page on uh, our work in Uganda and you were on there for five minutes, uh, that's way more useful to me than knowing you gave us $50 via check six months ago. I And I think that, that a big problem that I've seen and the thing that I always encourage uh, organizations to do is – there's a big disconnect between development departments and marketing departments and then development departments and finance departments. Yes. Notice there's one department that came up twice. <laughs> and the thing that you got to do that I did at my last job was I sat down and we wrote down all the terms that we use in our everyday work. And then we compared them. And when you say, when you say fund or when you say account or mm. when you say campaign, what do you mean by that? Yeah, And then we map that out because I think that a lot of times we make process assumptions that, well, we're, go- we're doing our thing, so obviously they should know about our thing. And right, I'm right, like, right. I don't think that they do. <laughs> and, and you know, the finance team especially, it would be like, well, when you say account, that's a constituent ID in Razor's Edge, whereas that is our general ledger line item for accounts receivable, right? Yeah. Like that's money. That has We don't care who that person is. Yeah. And so that simple thing starts to help with that. Now, leading it back to the point that you're trying to make, which I think is an excellent one, I think that we're not there yet. I think the vast majority of nonprofits wouldn't know what to do if they were handed HubSpot and all the budget in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, or Marketo or something like that, Pardo, there are a lot of great options for organizations that can do that. I think that we need a more nonprofit specific one out there. Um, you know, maybe we'll see that. I don't know in the coming months. 
hint. But um, but I think that that leveraging it down to understanding giving behavior is going to be really powerful. And yeah. I think that you are right that that I mean this is why we did build build up a web studio internally for Neon because we kept seeing that disconnect between you know really pretty form that makes sense for storytelling and then what's done in the data back end not a lot of there's very few CRM companies that actually do that they try to partner with other web firms and we love working with other web firms but we also said that the vast majority of organizations are just like they don't even know where to find a web firm so we're like yeah. let's just make one you know and yeah. and it helps it helps so we we see that we see that a lot. Yeah, and I and again, I think there's uh, you know the ecosystem and you guys in Neon One being intentional mm-hmm. about there is this ecosystem between service providers and vendors and data and kind of just saying, look, this is happening. Let's kind of embrace it. I think is really cool. Yeah, because you know, in our perspective, we're tool agnostic, tool opinionated. <laughs> we use a variety of tools, and like Hub, HubSpot is one of them for sure. And we think it's our job to actually kind of be on the leading edge and learn like how do nonprofits use something like HubSpot in an intelligent way yeah and then how do we share that knowledge with organizations and folks like you to build that into something like a product because then it can reach hundreds and thousands of organizations as opposed to dozens or something you know and, and if we do that collaborative collective impact model even ourselves as vendors and service providers uh, yeah. I think there's huge opportunity but when we go we're going to do proprietary and we're never going to share what we learn or we're going to do build into our product and you know it's only going to be on our product or I think I understand some of the business case I just don't think that's great for us as an industry and that's why oh. we share everything that we do I, and I agree. I, I mean, we're we're we're. I think you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of of kind of what you know we need to work toward. That's that's actually what I love about the Trailblazer community for Salesforce, right? In terms of it, it is very kind of collaborative, and things bubble up, and people listen, and and um, you know, whereas other companies, even ones that I've used before, you can tell like a product suggestion is just going to sit in the forum and just like not like go anywhere. And it's like, it's been three years since this is updated, (laughs) like any update here. And it's like, so that's, I think, I think listening to on the ground feedback is like vital. I mean, that that's, that's, that's some of my favorite parts of that's the reason that, uh, so neon has a direct integration with QuickBooks. And a few years ago, I'm going to be honest, we designed it, like kind of in a bubble we like maybe talk to somebody and then a bunch of people like had a bunch of problems with it and so <laughs> imagine imagine right and so i i when we were doing it i i actually dove in specifically into our forms because i was i was a user of quickbooks and so i said okay like how about i take this on and and we'll see what happens and it was just i posed a few basic questions and everybody gave a different answer yeah. and i remember somebody specifically saying oh i can see why this is so difficult <laughs> <laughs> so but we addressed that and by listening to user feedback on that i think that we have the best integration with quickbooks for nonprofits on the market and that's because we listen to people. We yeah. listen to users. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I mean, you read any kind of software blog or anything, it's all about customer feedback, both in mm-hmm. terms of developing, you know, either a hypothesis to test or then actually testing it. So, you know, testing that type of integration is trickier, like usage rates and like that's where customer service or, or surveys and conversations are probably more and more useful. So, Whereas like it, in our world, at least part of it is like, yeah, let's talk to donors who's a customer, right, in the fundraising world. But they're going to lie to you 
often not not intentionally. And so this is where testing is important too. And I'm shocked, absolutely shocked at the amount of vendors and service providers that do uh, emails and web pages and stuff like that, that either aren't testing or don't have case studies or like, I don't know what they're basing their builds on. It's just crazy to me. So this is this is a question I have for you because I kind of point to you folks as the gold standard for testing, right? Like just that kind of obsessive attention to detail when it comes to this type of stuff. For vendors like me and other and other people who are thinking about making the next killer app for the nonprofit <laughs> industry, right? Like we're gonna we're gonna change the world with our thing that's doing this with receipts you know for for cvs receipts um because they're so long we're going to change the world with that what do you (laughs) i just hate cvs receipts what advice can you give us to balance the obsessive need for revenue driving and meaning that we have to get a release out now in order to to you know win the market right versus let's take a breath. What's the advice on why we should take a breath? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question and I'll give you my opinion. But I think one of the the key principles of say like, you know, like lean startup and that kind of uh, Mm -hmm. optimize your way to breakthroughs is starting small. And I think that's massive, right? So you're going to roll out this whole new uh, receding thing. What if you take just a group of 10 that you know are great, they've opted in, data hygiene, which you talked about, that's actually the biggest reason why organizations don't test or can't test is they don't have data hygiene. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But you find a small pocket that do and you say, here's what we're going to do. Here's treatment one, two, three. You run some tests for three months. You figure out, okay, this is what we found to be uh, the best application of the receipts. <laughs> this is maybe yep. not the best example, but you know, uh, based on kind of interaction, the more more reads or more downloads or whatever you metric yeah, yeah, you determine. Yeah. And then our newest text text to give app. Let's do sure. that. Instead. There you go. So before you just kind of launch it. Uh, how do you actually get it in the hands of A, users, and B, uh, kind of the, the end customer, the end donor? Yeah. And then you figure out – and then you roll it out. And what's so interesting uh, is like if you don't do that, it's it sounds like it's going to take longer. It's, you know, it's kind of annoying. Uh, there's additional cost to testing. But if you get that thing wrong and you launch it to 10,000 organizations without actually figuring out – now to go back and rework and refigure out, that's way more expensive. It's and getting cost it wrong, you more money. absolutely yeah. right. And so that's why um, you know we talk about innovation and optimization. And innovation, oftentimes people think is like you know text to give or these new silver bullets. And what we're saying is basically through optimization, you can uncover what actually is an innovation by kind of doing this testing. You go, what just happened there? Well, let's test that. And I think sometimes we think these innovations need to be like we're going to Mars, like these crazy, crazy breakthroughs and that is yeah. one element of innovation but the more applicable innovation is kind of like incremental marginal growth and yep. you uncover that by doing these kind of tests and so you know I, I think that's part of it now to be be fair and then I'll end and let you kind of you know share is is tools like you uh, or donation tools they're often isolated from the data, a lot of the data that they need, right? So maybe you have donor information, but do you have web activity information? If you don't have that, then how do you get conversion rates? So how do you know which version won? And so that's where things get a little bit complicated. And that's where that ecosystem is needed between data sources, but also vendors and service providers to figure that out. So I want to ask you about the the big one and the nonprofit, you know, in my opinion, the elephant in the room for nonprofits and fundraising and all that, which is what do we do about Facebook then? Because they don't like sharing the data. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. What do we do about that? Because we, we see there is there is at a giving Tuesday, I think that they actually ended up running the most donations through their platform and they don't care about fees it has nothing to do with payment processing fees for them. They want the actual data of the person. So it, when you run up to the behemoth of that type of holding on to that data, they talk about having an open API and the graph and all that. But it's like for the reality is, is that I'm, it's going to take me three steps to 10 steps to actually match that up against my primary donor profile. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole, whole, whole another subject is I not bet. just not just Facebook. But so we've talked a lot about how to use more sophisticated data models, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have more data at our disposal. We can figure out this person's given in the past. They're on our Uganda page. Let's trigger this email with this contextual app. Like we, we can do that. It's not the easiest thing, but we can do that today. And it's very sophisticated and data oriented. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we also have um, – Third-party processors, um, you know, like Google donations, these um, donor yeah, the advice Google fund. Pay. They just announced the expansion Google of Google Pay for charity. Often, the the more that you simplify the experience, you lose data because it's someone like uh, uh, Facebook or, or Google or you know Amazon. Like if Amazon gets into instant giving, things like that, like they're not going to give you all that data. So now, at the same time, we've got the most sophisticated data modeling that we can ever do, and more and more ways to raise money, significant amounts of money with almost zero controller data. So it's this real interesting kind of, you know, again, catch-22. And it's like, well, if we only know how to fundraise or value data, then we won't know how to take advantage of Facebook and Googles and stuff like that. But if we only use Facebook and Googles and stuff like that, then we don't get the data. So I I think that's where it's going to be. I don't have a great answer, to be honest. But the common root is if people do not understand what your organization does and how their donation makes a difference, it does not matter. Yep. It doesn't matter whether you get the data. It doesn't matter if they use Facebook. It doesn't matter if they use Google. It doesn't matter if they use donation page. And I think that's where there can be some common elements and you can use research in one arena. Here's what we know people engage with. Here's what makes them convert and then apply it to different mediums, right? Here's what we should use on our Facebook fundraiser page or mm-hmm. you know, when we do Google search or whatever it is if you choose to go down that route. So I do think there's some transferable but you know, how we fundraise when we're absent of the donor data is like a massive, massive question that we're all going to struggle with in the next two decades. I think so. I think so. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So we've talked. So kind of, ending on ending on that high note. Yeah, ending on that, where we're like, we don't know anything. Um, <laughs> it's all terrible. <laughs> let me let me go back to maybe uh, a question that we ask a lot of people who come on the pod, and sure, you can sure. kind of tie it together. But we've talked yeah. somewhat about software and integrations, <laughs> ish. Uh, but how how do you think we can grow generosity and philanthropy? It doesn't need to be tied to software and integrations. Just like, what are some ideas that you see where in the space of like, here's what I think we need to do if we want to grow giving and generosity? It's a big question. Um, I, I do think we do need to prioritize data integrity. Um, and I think that we need to focus in on the, the donor experience more. Hmm. Um, I think they're tied hand in hand. I, I do think we're going right. to see more things like video uh, come into play. I think video is going to be a powerful for powerful form of storytelling. Mm. Uh, That's the only buzzword that has come out in the last few years that I don't hate, by the way, storytelling. I actually think it's a good uh, framework for thinking about things because ultimately this, this kind of gets into my obsession, which is that I, I hate transactional fundraising. I want relationship focused fundraising. And I think that we talk a lot about it, but we don't actually practice it. Um, 
kind of even that whole idea of of what uh, Stephen Shattuck's team over at Bloomerang talked about with seg lumping. <laughs> I love that term. I think it's a great term. I'm jealous that that they stole it or that I I can't steal it because they they came up with it and he probably copyrighted it once he hears this. But seg lumping is the idea of hello friend who donated slash came to an event slash volunteered slash like opened our newsletter about Uganda once. And that's like the complete opposite of what you and I have been talking about, and right. especially what you zero in on. And I think that it's, it's a terrible way to engage people, but we do it all the time. It's like the even it, it's, it's like a, in my opinion, even worse, I would rather just like spend even less energy just emailing my list a less personalized email than spending all that time and then blowing it on the segmentation. Um, and so ultimately, when we bring in different data uh, from from either integrations or you know uploading a CSV file or, or just even comparing it manually against things, we still need to then say, okay, but what's the story that I'm telling to this specific set of people? Mm-hmm. Or in, in the major donor case, this person, once you get down to that individual level. Because I also think that with technology, we tend not to even, especially when we get into major donor elements, we don't end up treating them as a unique individual who should be giving us $1,000 or more. We still apply like small donor principles to major donors mm-hmm. when it comes to technology. You know, somebody like Gail Perry is going to be able to, to rock out a story and ask questions and things like that. But then like the, the follow up email or whatever is still just as not personalized as anything that you're going to get. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a whole nother conversation. At some point, we got to wrap this up. But the personalization I know, I know. thing is is interesting. And we we're having this debate in our office about segmentation where um, I, we think per, uh, fundraising needs to be unbelievably personal. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to tell me and capture all my information so that you know like, hey, Brady, how's your wife Liz and your son? You know, how are you doing? I know he's, you know, six months old now. Like, that that's sometimes gets confused as personalization, whereas yeah. personal is like I mean, calling me Brady's a good start, but like, hey Brady, um, you know, thank you so much for supporting our work in the past. We know that you you showed interest in Uganda once. Hey, we wanted to give you this update on Uganda. Like that that's being very personal, e- even though it's not all the way personalized. Do you know what I mean? And I think in our attempts I, I to be overly personalized, I think we can become impersonal. This is this is going back to the, some of the uh, original items about impact v- metrics versus vanity metrics, mm. right? Like you, I think what that that's hitting at is we collect all, or especially when we get more sophisticated marketing and tools and things like that. I've I've seen some folks get obsessed about well, we need to collect all this data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, well, who cares? Like, what does it lead to the mission? Why do they care about you? Right. That's the other piece. It's 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 process, it's data hygiene, and then it's ultimately mission-focused. If you do not have a foundation that is mission-focused, if every question that you are asking in your marketing, your fundraising, and your operations doesn't start with how does this relate to our mission, you are going to be wrong. Hmm. Yeah, and you know the there's a lot more in common amongst your donors than that is different. Like they support mm-hmm. your organization, right? And so – 
you know, in this pursuit of kind of over-segmentation, over-personalizing, again, we can become impersonal and we can be kind of become stagnant. And so we're not sending out communication. We're not sending out updates. And again, there's all these kind of, um, you know, ironies or catch-22s and we've talked about a few of them. And I, I think it's because we're just starting to really, really engage and interact with a lot of these uh, issues that we haven't in- had to interact too much. Like, you know, digital touches all departments and how do we evaluate costs and we've got generational transfers and new tools and older people and we're all these things are kind of a big cluster, you know, and I think we're all kind of uh, struggling through and trying to figure it out. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's big questions that are going to continue to get harder to answer as technology becomes easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, another so, one of those ironies. Yeah. So, woo, woo. <laughs> well. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for, for coming on and taking this time to chat. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Hopefully the, the listeners do as well. Yeah. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? When, By the way, when is this coming out? It's when a good question. We don't know yet. You don't know? No. Okay. Well, no matter what, go to www.neonone.com. Okay. There you go. If it happened to be Thursday, they might see something new. Okay. Well, there you go. And we'll be sure to send that out in the show notes. So uh, thanks again, Tim, and uh, keep up the great work. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It- Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kachuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. 